I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the biggest undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today. That despite all we know, it can feel as though there is something missing in our faith. Over the next two episodes, I want to talk about two themes that can be very closely related. I'm talking about guilt and shame. And in this episode, I'll specifically talk about guilt. Now, I can't tell you the history of the word guilt in the scriptures, but what I can tell you is that it occurs many times, especially in the Old Testament. The Israelite people were required to make a sin offering if they had intentionally sinned and would not be freed from the position of guilt until they had done so. But there was also a guilt offering that was to be provided to cover unintentional sin. So you were deemed guilty for sin until an offering was made to expunge the actions committed, whether those actions were intentional or not. In the new covenant, because of Jesus's death, we are now positionally without guilt because Jesus took upon himself the sin and the ultimate consequences for sin by becoming the once and for all sacrifice for mankind. Never again would we be put in the seat of guilt. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't feel guilty from time to time in relation to the choices we make. And we are still encouraged in Scripture to confess, like it says in James 5.16. And of course, we are also encouraged to repent, as Paul instructed the church of Corinth to do in the second letter in chapter 12 for some impure actions that were being committed at the time. But positionally before God, we are without guilt. We do not need to pay any price ever again because we are no longer declared guilty on account of Jesus. But from my observations, the Christian community still has a strange relationship with guilt. For starters, I constantly come across people who are completely ruled by guilt. They know Jesus intimately. They know what he has done via the cross, but they feel constantly guilty and the voice of guilt drives their choices, which I am sure affects how well they are able to hear from God. So that's really what I want to address in this episode, the feeling of guilt as opposed to actually being guilty. So what is guilt? Well, obviously there is the positional guilt that I mentioned earlier, which I find easier to understand when picturing a courtroom setting. Yet prior to Jesus, we were declared guilty by the judge because we were unable to prove that we were holy and without sin. But when Jesus came along, he took our place against the accuser and was declared not guilty and we therefore received the verdict that was given to him. That's what I would call positional guilt. It's probably called something else, but that's just what I would call it. It's the declaration that is made from a high level in the spiritual realm about our status with God. But then there is the guilt that we feel, an emotional response that probably finds its origins in our conscience and is triggered when we realize we have done something that we deem sinful or wrong. It probably acts as an internal signal to encourage us to repent, apologize, or do something to rectify a situation or relationship. So I think it would be best to kind of intro this whole theme, because I've kind of just jumped right in there, to tell you a little bit about my own journey with guilt. There's a little secret that might interest you about Indian culture. Indian parents are experts in the operation of guilt. Not only do they often struggle with guilt themselves, they seem to know just how to wield words and actions in a way that makes you feel guilty. 
I've heard stories my entire life from my relatives and Indian friends about how their parents guilt tripped them into doing something or submitting. Amazingly, I have not seemed to fall to this ploy so easily, much to my mother's frustration. Even though most would say I was the placid one between my brother and I, I certainly had my own mini rebellion going on in that I wasn't so obviously ruled by expectations like most other Indian kids. I studied what I wanted to, I almost didn't go to university, I obviously became a Christian, and I married an Australian guy. Now, my parents aren't racist, they just were nervous that I would struggle in marriage if I married someone with such differing cultural values to my own. But a lot of Indian families aren't fans of intermarriage and not necessarily for the same reasons as my parents. Later in life, I discovered the verse Romans 8 verse 1, which says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? You've probably heard it before. And that verse made me realize something. Oh, we don't really have to feel guilt anymore because we are free from actual condemnation. So yes, I might feel guilty for some action I've taken, but the value of the feeling of guilt is in its ability to cause me to repent. Once I repent though, I am not positionally guilty anymore. And therefore the emotion of guilt is now obsolete. It served its purpose. So I concluded If I feel guilt, I repent, and any guilt I feel after I repent is not from God and illegitimate. And I'd be on my merry way, and the guilt would subside. And then I became a mother, and I realized that guilt is like the ruling force of motherhood. Even when you are doing the best thing for your kids, somehow you still feel guilty. I remember when I was working at a church, Leela, my daughter, was like two or three years old, and I would send her to my mother's house one day a week. So one day, Leela was coloring. She'd come, you know, come back from their house and she was coloring or doing something. And she clearly made a mistake because out popped a swear word. It, you don't need to know which one it was, but, you know, it was a decent one. Everyone would have noticed at Kids Church if she dropped that word while she was coloring there right? So we knew she wasn't learning it from us. We, we didn't let her watch anything with swearing in it. So I put two and two together and figured she probably heard my mum saying it because, you know, my mum definitely swears. Next thing, I was spiraling in a sea of guilt, wondering whether I could ever really do ministry. I was literally about to quit. Like this is all in like a 24 hour period because I just kept thinking, what if she says that at kids church and I'm a pastor what would I do? I felt called to what I was doing. Was I supposed to cut my family out? And how would that witness to them? Then I started feeling ashamed. You know the kind of thoughts. Nobody else on staff has to battle these kinds of issues, Mel, because they all come from good Christian families. Who are you kidding thinking that you could be good enough to be a staff member when you've come from a Hindu background? I already was hyper aware that people and staff with me just would probably never have to face some of the kinds of complexities that I would face of trying to honor and love my Hindu parents and still navigate a ministry lifestyle, let alone a Christian life. I spiraled big time. All this stuff was coming up. It was, you know, things that I hadn't even really acknowledged were coming up to the surface. But thank God for my husband, Josh, because he was like, I think you're jumping to conclusions, Mel. Let's just not make a big deal out of it and she'll probably stop saying it. Sure enough, I think I heard her say it like one more time and that was it. I was so glad that I listened to Josh because I would have quit something that God had very obviously called me to. Guilt 
is a very powerful emotion. In that situation, it almost made me give up on God's plan for my life. Now, I realize that this might be a slightly humorous story, but at the time it was no joke. I legitimately had visions of Leela, this cute little two-year-old kid at kids' church and like yelling out obscenities in the middle of the meetings, you know, and I imagined that I would be in the service with my hands up, you know, in the air, praising God, and they'd have that little message come up on the screen, on the center screen, and it says, Mrs. Saywood, please come to kids' church. Your child is swearing at the kids' leaders. And everyone would see it. And they'd turn and they'd look at me and go, is that Mel's kid? Who let her become a pastor? (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, it's funny when I look back on it, but I was seriously like reconsidering everything at that point. Now you want to know the worst thing about guilt. Most people I know, including myself, don't even wonder whether they are actually legitimately guilty for the things they feel guilty about. In the example of Leela swearing, at no point did I say, should I be feeling guilty? Like, had I actually sinned? You know, Leela swore, which is probably something she learned from my mum. And she had been looked after by my parents for years by this time and was under the impression that they didn't swear in front of her because they didn't swear in front of me. So the only thing I could possibly hold myself responsible for was sending Leela to my mum's which, you know, was a decision that my husband and I made together. So, you know, we were each 50% responsible. But was it a sin to send Leela to my mum's? Like that's, you know, when you drum it all down and you filter it all down, that was the final question. Was it actually a sin to send Leela to my mum's? No, absolutely not. There's nothing specifically I can say that makes this a sin. Like if I was in the Old Testament times, I wouldn't have to gather up a lamb and take it to the priest as a sacrifice for this. But at the time, I didn't even question the guilt. I assumed it was rightfully placed. See, as Christians, we're often punishing ourselves for that kind of stuff every day. Stuff that's not sin. It's just judgment calls that we have to make and we can't necessarily predict the outcome but we feel guilty and almost naively assume we did something wrong and now we have to pay some debt for it. All the while, Jesus is probably up there going, hey guys, I've already paid all debts and, you know, right this minute, you're charging yourself with a debt that I wouldn't have charged against you. It's really weird how my interpretation of Jesus like came out that way. But anyway, we're not going to critique that. We're not going to get into it just in case. Yeah, okay, we're not getting into it. So there are two kinds of tendencies I've observed when it comes to guilt in the Christian community. The first one is Christians who have an overactive guilty conscience. And the second one is Christians who have an underactive guilty conscience. Well, let's talk about the first one. Christians in this category are ruled by the shoulds. Do you know what I mean by that? It's that that voice that tells you that you should be doing this and you should be doing that. You shouldn't think like that and you shouldn't feel that way. Should, 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 should. Again, the shoulds aren't strictly based on sin. It's just an accumulation of rules and expectations that we've assumed, often without question, that we must adhere to. Then there are the oughts. The oughts are driven by duty. Often you've taken on a new assignment in life and this ought will kind of creep in, this ought language. Now I'm a mother, I ought to do this and I ought to do that. Now that I'm a leader or a pastor, I ought to do this because that's what pastors do. Sometimes those oughts are grossly unrealistic, 
but in your head, you legitimately think it's what is required without question. Some of our society's obsession with busyness is because of these oughts and shoulds. We simply must have our kids in every single extracurricular activity because otherwise we aren't really giving them all of the opportunities that they should have in life. We have to respond to every text and email straight away because as a manager, I should be available. Sometimes we negotiate a should with an ought and an ought with a should. We tell ourselves it's okay to work unreasonably long hours, which is what we feel we ought to do, because I had a date night last week with my spouse, which is what we feel we should do. See what I mean? And whilst we are so preoccupied with appeasing the shoulds and the oughts, the things that are really important are put on the wayside, like just loving God and loving people. Now, there are shoulds and oughts in scripture, so it's not that there is something inherently wrong with the words, but I think we could probably agree that a higher level of discernment is needed. Imagine how these shoulds and oughts are affecting our relationship with God. We know we should be in the word daily. We know we should pray. We know we should probably go to church, but it doesn't seem like these shoulds and oughts are really working. They aren't really effectively motivating us when you consider the statistics for prayer, reading the word and church attendance. So here's the thing. Shoulds and oughts are often not motivated by love or desire. We aren't acting freely in accordance with the love in our hearts. We're acting under the compulsion of our overactive guilty conscience. We do all these things because of the rules we have developed about how we ought to and how we should act, and not necessarily because it is how we want to act. Now, I realize that when it comes to sin, there is a time when what you want and what you should do are at war with each other. But again, we aren't talking about sin here. We are simply talking about the actions we have adopted over years of expectations that we have believed are required. Okay, let's look at the other tendency, which is the tendency to have no guilt, like to have an underactive guilty conscience. Within this tendency, there are two types. There are the people who will do some of the worst things imaginable and don't feel any guilt about it. Now, they're probably just narcissists, and there's not much I can say about that besides get yourself to a counsellor. But the other type are just Christians who got so sick of feeling guilty all the time and realised that they couldn't alleviate the guilt no matter how hard they tried, so they just gave in to the things that they really wanted to do. I actually have so much compassion for those in this category because nobody told them that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We aren't meant to be ruled by guilt. We are meant to be led by a relationship, a wholesome, loving, guilt-free relationship. Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's in Matthew 11, verse 30. According to Jesus, his expectations should feel light. Not only are there probably a lot fewer expectations that Jesus has of us than we are often expecting of ourselves, but also In comparison to what we gain relationally by knowing Jesus, living out the life of a disciple would feel light. But if you haven't experienced that kind of relationship with Jesus yet, like so many, and it's all rules and expectations, of course you won't feel light. And of course it won't feel worth it because the rules to appease some God you don't really know is bound to have you asking why eventually especially if doing so doesn't make you feel great either. 
You know, some of these rules are really concerning too. Like, have you ever heard a Christian person say, I don't feel like I can rest? I mean, Jesus rested. So why in the world would you feel guilty about resting? The other one I hear is, I just don't feel like I'm doing enough. Yeah, look, sometimes people say this out of gratefulness to God. You know, they want to do more because they love him so much and they're so grateful for what he has done in their life. But when you do feel like that, the response Jesus wants you to have is worship and relationship, not always just do, 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 do. The reality is sometimes Jesus doesn't want you to do anything. You keep overworking, killing yourself, trying to do things for him. And he's like, hey, man, you're giving faith a bad name when you portray it to others like it's a life of busyness and burnout. Who's going to want that? Who can really sustain that? The world already has that kind of religion. It's called success and wealth, and it drives them bonkers. It's not contributing to a better life, better families, or a better society. We are supposed to be different. Guilt is a really powerful emotion. And if it hasn't been made clear yet, the reason we need to talk about this is because you absolutely will feel like something is missing in your faith when your life is ruled by guilt. Guilt is robbing you of experiencing the deep, nourishing faith in Jesus. And sometimes we in the body of Christ are using guilt against each other, giving each other the wrong impression of Jesus because we haven't put guilt in its place for ourselves. You know, I follow a lot of pastors online and recently there have been a bucket load, like posting about how you shouldn't be surprised if your kids don't follow the Lord when you treat church as optional. Now, for the believer who has a conviction to be at church every week without fail, this statement probably has no effect on you. But for those who don't, it's just not really a very helpful statement. There's some very unchristian motivators undergirding such statements. Like, are we oblivious to the fact that these statements basically use fear, guilt and duty to motivate people to come to church? Look, for starters, I'm not really sure how true the statement is. It is so common to hear stories of parents who religiously drag their kids to church and now the kids aren't following God at all. But worse still, often the same pastors will quote Romans 8.1, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but use parental guilt to make people attend church? Like, why are you adding to their already heightened guilt? Surely you can find another way to encourage people to come to church than by using guilt and fear. Plus, if they come because they are afraid and feel like a bad parent if they don't, they aren't really coming for the greatest reason either. They aren't coming because they are getting something out of your message or because they want to contribute. Are we really okay with that? Now, why is it bad when we use guilt against each other? I'll tell you why. Because God does not use guilt to motivate us. And when we use guilt against each other, we mistakenly believe he does. See, God just loves us without an agenda. He created this new covenant that we freely choose. Now, I'll be the first to say that in the Western world, we need to grow in our faith. and We need to deepen our faith. But growth doesn't start with guilt. 
For the greatest and truest relationships we experience in this life, we will be willing to give up much because the relationship means so much to us. We won't even have to be asked to do that. You know, you guys have heard me. I love my daughter. She will never have to ask me to sacrifice for her. I do that willingly out of love. And when I sometimes do things out of guilt or duty, which I do, it's no longer really a willing sacrifice, is it? It's a compulsion under an oppressive expectation. In the long run, it will lead to resentment. You know, when my daughter is a teenager and decides that I'm the worst person in the world and hates me, which I hope it doesn't happen, but there's a good chance it will, I won't regret the choices I made willingly out of love but I will probably be bitter for all the things that I gave up because I should or I ought to that I didn't really want to. It's the same with God. There was this law that the Israelites were told they should adhere to, but they didn't really want to because they didn't have the same kind of relationship that you and I can experience with God today because of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. When asked which is the greatest commandment, Jesus summarizes it all into love. That's our goal, just to grow in love, to remain in him and grow in love. And that will be your motivation to obey him. After all, it says it in Romans 2 verse 4. It says, can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Okay, I've harped on enough. Let's go deeper. Why do we so easily fall into the trap of feeling guilty for things that aren't sin? Well, I can see a few reasons. The first one is over-responsibility. There are a lot of reasons we develop a sense of over-responsibility. Often victims of abuse are predisposed to over-responsibility. Maybe you were around people who are unable to cope with their own responsibilities and you had to step in. But whatever the reason, when you are over-responsible, there is already an increased sense of guilt. In fact, it might be the guilt that predisposes you to over-responsibility. You know, it could be a bit of a chicken-egg situation, you know. Over-responsible people are bound to feel guilt because they often can't keep up with what they are holding themselves accountable to. The disappointment of not keeping it all under their control spurs them toward guilt. Number two, an overwhelming sense of indebtedness. For some reason, some people feel perpetually indebted, whether it be to an organization, a church, a family member. Indebtedness is an awful feeling too, because it makes you feel like you're in a constant position of owing someone something. The fact is that Jesus doesn't even want you to owe him. He wants you to respond in love and willingness, just as his act of sacrifice was made freely and willingly. There's much in scripture to guide us on what an appropriate response to this grace is, but at the end of the day, the debt has been paid well and truly. Now, this point, number two, is very similar to the next one, which is number three, you don't feel like you have the right to. You know, one of the most common moments people feel guilt is when they have to say no to someone or they have to establish a boundary. Saying no and establishing boundaries are actually a fact of life. You know, we don't have homes with no doors. A door is a signal to the outside world that this is my house and you can't just come walking in whenever you want to. But for some, they still feel incessant guilt for closing the door. I think this is a good indicator that you feel like you don't have the right or the authority to. 
Strange, right? Like why would you think that you don't have the right or the authority over your own life? Well, I think that that can relate to unworthiness. You know, when you have a low self-worth, you don't really even think you have a right to exist sometimes. You definitely don't feel like you have a right to pursue your own desires or meet your own needs because you don't think you're worthy of having needs, let alone meeting those needs. Consequently, guilt enters in when you do things for yourself. You'll feel guilty for just being content or for being joyful because you don't believe you are good enough to feel good. Number four, preoccupation with fault. If you have a tendency to want to assign blame or responsibility as a first instinct to any given situation, you will naturally struggle with guilt. In fact, it may even be a protection mechanism against guilt. One of the businesses I worked in had this really unhelpful habit of sitting around the conference room and spending an entire meeting just trying to work out who was at fault for something that might have happened that went wrong. I remember I used to get so frustrated. Like there were some times, yes, where you did need to work out like if any kind of disciplinary action needed to be taken, but so few of the times were actually like that. Now, the reason this would predispose you to guilt is that chances are the way you are interpreting situations is also the way you will interpret your own actions. So instead of seeing a situation and all of its influencing factors, you will blame yourself and that is surely going to open the door to guilt. Number five, insecurity in your assignments. There are different roles that you will play throughout life, right? Mother, father, wife, husband, daughter, son, employee, leader, boss, student, and many, many more. When you have some insecurity in those assignments though, you will look to other people's guidance or opinions to define what being successful in those roles means. Now, sometimes that is wisdom, but not all the time, because inevitably you accumulate standards that you haven't necessarily determined the level of appropriateness for yourself in your life circumstances and your specific qualities, because they were someone else's standards set for their specific circumstances and their specific qualities. And therefore, you feel guilty for not being able to meet the criteria. Like, I've settled it that I'm never going to be a Martha Stewart kind of mum. And thankfully, I've worked out that my family aren't really that disturbed by that. So if I were to listen to other mothers and the expectations they have and adopt them without appropriate consideration, I will probably feel guilty really quick. The point is... You get to define with God how he intended for you to uniquely live out the roles that he placed you in and trying to live it like someone else, which we only do because we are uncertain of ourselves, will for sure produce guilt because you can't be them and you never will. Okay, let's just go a little deeper again. Why are we even relying on that feeling of guilt versus no guilt to determine where we stand. See, the fact is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Feeling guilty or not is not what determines our innocence. To rely on how we feel, to work out if what we have done is right or wrong, is a fallible system. Contrary to what some Christians believe, some people don't feel guilty for getting drunk. Many people don't feel bad for sleeping around. 
We don't all experience guilt the same way for the same things. In the eyes of the law, they may be guilty, but that doesn't mean we feel the things we are actually guilty of. That is why the law was not abolished when the new covenant was instigated, because we would all end up with very different interpretations of what is right or wrong if sin were to be based on our conscience. And yet people live like that every day, right? Our conscience is not a good guide. It's not a perfect guide anyway. The spirit and the word is. We know the conscience is capable of corruption. It says so in Titus 1 verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Okay, so let's just calibrate. Number one, under the new covenant, guilt is a thing of the past. We don't have to pay a penalty or do some kind of sacrifice to clear our conscience. We repent and we move on. Anything more than that is unnecessary. Remember that Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin instantly. If he declares you righteous, you have the permission to let it go. His judgment of you is what really matters anyway. Number two, there is no condemnation anymore. You are saved. Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think I've used that verse about three times today in this podcast. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus's purpose in coming to this world was not condemnation. So why are you carrying guilt? That was never his purpose in coming to earth. Number three, we are righteous. Under the new covenant, we have been declared righteous. There is absolutely nothing we are meant to continue carrying guilt for. You know, we have this habit of looking at ourselves and continuing to measure where we think we are and how good we feel. But Jesus has declared us righteous. Nothing we do changes that position. Even when we do good, even when we do bad, it doesn't change the declaration. We are righteous regardless of what we do because it's a righteousness that is given by faith and not by deeds. Okay, I said all of that really, really fast, but let's go deeper one more time. You know, I think the real problem here is that it can just be too hard to fathom that repentance is all we need when we sin. Like we think we are getting off too easily. So we think we need to keep punishing ourselves longer. But if you think this, friend, you have misunderstood the depths of God's love for you. He's got no interest in making you pay or suffer, even when you have sinned. Even for non-believers, the consequences of sin are simply the consequences. It's not because God is some ruthless ruler who enjoys administering punishment. There's nothing in scripture to support that God likes to administer punishment. There is much more, though, to say that it causes him pain. It says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If he could have it his way, completely his way, no person would experience the consequences of sin. That would be his preference. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want to punish anyone. 
His pure love assures us of that. Our sin is instantly cancelled when we repent. Disappeared, gone, like it never existed. And it will never be brought up, remembered or presented to you again by God. His love is actually that good. His mercy is that good that you will never again get what you actually deserve. Now, let me finish here with one more story that would show you just how much Jesus loves you because I believe this is the real answer to guilt, an ongoing growing revelation of his love. The Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, knowing that her sin invited the punishment of stoning. They wanted to see what Jesus would do if he would faithfully administer the law. But look at what happens in John 8 verses 7 to 11. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up to her and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman was guilty. She had definitely sinned. There was definitely no argument about that. She wasn't guilty of missing the mark on some personal standard. She was guilty against the law, which carried a very weighty punishment. And yet Jesus says he does not condemn her. This was no small sin. You know how there is this unspoken hierarchy of sins in the Christian world that we've determined are the worse and they're, you know, worse than the others? Well, adultery is one of the sins on that list. And yet Jesus let her go. I recently read an article about Simone Bile, which I hope I'm saying that correctly, and how some Christians were negatively labeling her choice to withdraw from the Olympics. You know, one man's response to this particular article I had read was to say that Jesus would have told her that her act was unloving and that she had been selfish for leaving her teammates. But I was immediately reminded of this passage and the adulterous woman and knew that Jesus would not have condemned Simone for pulling out of a sporting event. Not if he forgave the adulterous woman for an actual and obvious sin. How sad it is that we project our own guilt-driven judgments onto Jesus and try to predict how he would behave, instead of looking at how he actually behaved with incredible, incomprehensible compassion. He completely relinquished his right to punish the adulterous woman. My point is, Jesus definitely loves much more lavishly than we think he does. He administers his grace more generously than we would assume. We can't understand it because it's not natural for us. We might partly comprehend his grace when we repent for the sins we feel guilty about. But what about the multitude of sins that we commit every day that we just have no awareness of, let alone acknowledge? His grace is covering that too. So coming back to guilt, I want to echo the words of Jesus to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. A man that I am certain the enemy would have tried to oppress with guilt for his past actions against the community that he came to love. 
His grace is sufficient for you. Every time you allow guilt to drive your choices and your feelings and your emotions and your mind, it means you haven't seen in full view what grace is really about. Because His grace is sufficient for any sin, any trial, any mistake, any accident or oversight. His grace is sufficient for you and for all. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.